0: Filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ, to so the glory and praise of God. Philippians 1, 3 through 11.
1: Thank you so much, Pebbles, and thank you all so much for being here this morning. It is great to have you with us here at River Oaks. Delighted to see you today, and uh, what a joy to celebrate in Ava's baptism this morning. I want to welcome back to our church today uh, Pastors Sonny. And Pastors West Tuttle, they got in pretty late last night uh, from a trip all over Sierra Leone. I understand they went to about 18 different villages there. So we look forward to hearing about that. Welcome again to those of you joining us online this morning. And thank you again for being here in uh, this first month of a new year. We've begun the year this January with a focus on spiritual renewal, and we've been looking at the prayers of the Apostle Paul that are found in Scripture. We're emphasizing prayer throughout this month. As many as you know, we've been having, uh, as many of you know, we're having Wednesday evening prayer times. So we'll have another one this coming Wednesday in our gym at 5:30 pm. Those go for about an hour, and there is child care there, so hope you'll consider joining us for that. God calls his people to be devoted to prayer. If you have ever read our 2025 vision, you know that there is a significant emphasis in our vision, and our vision statement is simply about a page or so statement of the church we believe God wants us to be by the year 2025. You'll see a paragraph from that vision on the screen now, and there's an emphasis on prayer throughout this vision. One paragraph reads this way, the emphasis on spiritual formation that leads to gospel-centered outreach is joined with a culture of prayer at River Oaks. That's what we hope will typify our church, a culture of prayer. It's common to see people clustered in the coffee bar or hallway praying for someone on Sundays. Students frequently gather before and after youth meetings to pray for their friends who do not yet know the Lord. This is happening a lot. The prayer room is one of the most utilized spaces throughout the week as staff and students, ministers and members, young and old, gather informally for prayer. I think it's generally true that great movements of the Holy Spirit throughout history have always been linked with prayer. The Bible commentator from Puritan years, Matthew Henry, wrote that when God intends a great work, he first sets his people a-praying. I was reading this week again about one of the greatest works of the Holy Spirit that's ever been done in this country, sometimes referred to as the revival of 1857 or the New York Revival or the layman's prayer revival. But it began after a time of uh, significant financial hardship in the United States. In the fall of 1857, there was a stock market crash. A lot of people had lost their investments, their income. And uh, In New York City, there was a man who had been a businessman, but he'd come on the staff of this church as kind of a lay minister named Jeremiah Lanfear. And he spent most of his day walking around the streets of New York and reaching out to people, typically people of a lower income. And after the stock market crash and, and the financial distress and panic, he decided it would be good to try to gather together businessmen to pray. And so he scheduled a weekly prayer time at a church on Fulton Street in New York inviting people to come and pray. He put posters out on the streets of the city and on the first day, nobody showed up for about half an hour. Before the hour ended, five people had come and so there were six that week. The next week, 20 people showed up and it continued to grow. They decided to make it a daily prayer meeting. By April of 1958, Christian History Magazine reports that there were 10,000 people praying. And this soon became a a national event. Without a great deal of publicity at all, with no well-known preacher or speaker as has happened in other revivals in history, this prayer movement spread all over the country. One of the most remarkable things was the unity across denominational and church lines that was exhibited throughout this, this movement across the nation. Then people began coming to faith. Conversions began to happen. One writer estimates that at the peak of this revival, 1857, 58 into 59, uh, 50,000 people weekly were coming to faith, and as many as 500,000 to a million people were converted. Now, the whole population of the United States back then in 1857 was only about 30 million people, less than a tenth of what it is today. College campuses erupted with revival, and, uh, and one of my favorite books on revival history is called A God Size Vision. Their chapter on this particular revival, two of the colleges they mentioned experiencing revival were two in North Carolina. They mentioned Davidson College, and they mentioned Wake Forest, which at that time was not in (laughs) Winston-Salem. Hundreds of thousands of people, again, were converted, and there was no famous preacher. Prayer. It was a prayer revival. But I think it's true of all great revivals in history, prayer is at the foundation. You think of what we read of uh, the day of Pentecost in the book of Acts. There were 120 people gathered, praying in an upper room when the Holy Spirit was poured upon them, and then Peter preached his great sermon, and 3,000 came to faith. Throughout history, as Matthew Henry, the Puritan says, when God intends to do a great work, he first sends his people to praying. He brings revival, renewing to his church, and that leads to outreach to the world. A revived church leads to a reached world. And that's one reason that prayer is foundational to our vision, to who we are, and do we hope to be who we hope to be here at River Oaks. So we're beginning this year with an emphasis on prayer. We're looking specifically at the prayers of the Apostle Paul given to us in Scripture. Keep in mind that these are prayers that are already inspired by the Holy Spirit. The prayers of Paul we find in Scripture provide us, I think, with two very significant things. First of all, they provide us with keys for our own spiritual growth. Because Paul's prayers in Scripture are focused on the spiritual progress and maturity of Christians. His prayers are found in Ephesians chapter 1, verses 16 through 19. I noticed that Rhett Russ, when he was praying for his daughter a few moments ago, was praying from that prayer. He was praying scripture that God would give to Ava, a spirit of wisdom and revelation and the knowledge of him to know him better. Ephesians 1 and Ephesians chapter 3, the prayer we studied last week. Philippians 1, the prayer we'll study today that Pebbles just read for us. Colossians chapter 1, 2 Thessalonians chapter 1. Each of these passages includes a prayer of two or three verses or more prayed by the Apostle Paul. All these prayers have one thing in common. Their content is focused on the spiritual growth of believers. Now, when we pray, I've noticed in my own life, I've noticed in prayer meetings I've been a part of, and perhaps you've noticed too, most of our prayer uh, prayers tend to focus on issues of health or relationships or decisions that need to be made. Uh, Often we pray for our missionaries and others. These are all good things. We should keep praying about every one of those things. The Bible says in everything by prayer and supplication, let your request be made known to God. But when I look at the weight of Paul's prayers, I wonder if we need to add some of this weight to our own prayers. Prayer for the spiritual growth and progress of believers because he majored on that in his prayers. Now, the beauty of learning and knowing these prayers is that they provide us with a spiritual map, a map for our own spiritual growth. They paint a picture of what our spiritual growth can be, what our spiritual progress can look like. They give us a vision for what our own spiritual progress can be. And then secondly, they give us guidance in praying others. As we heard Rhett do a moment ago, praying for his daughter. Those of you with children, they guide you in how to pray for your children. Those of you who lead small groups or teach Bible studies, they guide you in how to pray for those who are going to hear the teaching that you bring. They give us guidance in praying for others. These prayers are already inspired by the Holy Spirit, so they give us a vocabulary for prayer. They teach us how to pray, they reveal God's will. And when we pray these prayers, we can know we're praying according to God's will. Now, before we examine the content of the prayer that uh, Pebbles read a moment ago, in Philippians chapter 1, let's, let's consider the setting in which we find this prayer in Philippians chapter 1. First of all, as he often does, Paul the apostle begins his prayers with thanksgiving for the people for whom he he prays. It is remarkable to me how often he does this. You see all the references on the screen there, starting with Romans 1 through Philemons 1? All those verses include uh, statements of Paul giving thanks to God for the people to whom he's writing and for whom he's praying. As he says in Philippians, I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine for you all, making my prayer with joy. He does what the Bible says to do. He enters God's presence, his gates with thanksgiving, in his courts with praise. Now, you won't see all those verses on the screen. I'm just going to read from them very, very quickly. So just, just listen to these for a moment, if you would. Romans 1 and verse 8. First, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you. 1 Corinthians 1 and verse 4, I give thanks to my God always for you because of the grace of God that was given you in Christ Jesus. Colossians 1 and verse 3, we always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you. 1 Thessalonians 1 and verse 2, we give thanks to God always for all of you, constantly mentioning you in our prayers. 2 Thessalonians 1 and verse 3, we ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers, as it's right. Second Timothy 1 and verse 3, I thank God whom I serve as did my ancestors with a clear conscience as I remember you constantly in my prayers night and day. Boy, he sure prayed a lot, didn't he? Wow. In Philippians, Philemon's uh, 1 and verse 4, I thank my God always when I remember you in my prayers. This man prayed a lot, but notice the way he approached prayer, specifically the way he approached praying for other people. He did what the Bible says to do, enter his gates with thanksgiving, enter his courts with praise. He did what he teaches us to do, in everything give thanks, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. He prays with thanksgiving. He begins with praise, gratitude to God. As he often does, he begins by praying with thanksgiving for the people for whom he prays. Secondly, Paul prays for the Philippians with confidence here. He writes, I'm sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. It is right for me to feel this way about you all because I hold you in my heart. Paul's confidence seems to flow from two things. Number one, his confidence is in God. It's in God, not in himself. Look at that verse again, if you would, on the screen. I'm sure he will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. Paul's confidence is in God who started the work and would finish it because God completes what he starts. Secondly, he's confident because, as he says in the latter part of the verse, I hold you in my heart. Think about that for a moment. Have you ever prayed for someone so much that you felt like you just held them in your heart? Maybe a a, a child, sibling, friend, someone who's gone astray from the Lord for whom you feel a deep compassion. You hold them in your heart. Paul is praying with confidence because something has happened in his heart as he's prayed. He's holding on to them. God changes our hearts over time, often giving us assurance as we pray for others. Paul had this assurance. He said, I'm confident you begin a good work and you will bring it to completion. Related to this, the third point, Paul prays for them with the affection, the affection of Christ Jesus. For God is my witness how I yearn for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. Paul had a love for the people for whom he prayed. And this is not a mere human love. This is not a love just because the person's a good friend or a family member. This love comes from Christ. This love is the affection of Christ Jesus, and something of that affection has been put into Paul's heart as he's been praying for these people. It's not a mere human love, the affection of Christ. God changes our hearts toward other people when we pray for them. Even people whom we dislike. In fact, I would say this. If you need a heart change toward someone, the best way for that to happen that I know of is to begin praying for God's good work in that person's life. Maybe you've got a neighbor who's just a real annoyance to you. (laughs) Maybe you work with someone who's a real, real uh, annoyance to you. That's been the case for me over the years, though never in our church here on our church staff. Uh, I haven't always been a pastor. I was a sales rep for about 12 years, and I worked with some people that were just really, really hard to get along with, and I would have a bad attitude. But I found that if I would just begin to pray for God's work and not bad things to happen, but God to do good things in them, that he would change my heart. He would change my heart. I I highly recommend this. You know, Jesus said, Love your enemies, bless those who curse you, pray for those who despitefully use you and persecute you. Remember, He's the one who, dying on the cross, prayed, Father, forgive them, for they don't know what they're doing. If you've read of the martyr Stephen in the book of Acts, as he was being pelted to death, put to death with stones. Pray, Father, don't hold this against them. And one of the people he was praying for, standing out there holding the cloaks of the people towing the rocks, was a man named Saul. He would soon become the Apostle Paul who wrote this letter we're reading today. He prays. Hearts are changed as we pray. Remember this about prayer, the prayers of Paul. They can guide us with a vision for our own lives and they can teach us how to pray. Now let's look at that prayer Uh, itself with that background. Let's look at the content of Paul's prayer. Paul prays, number one, for the Philippians to have and for all believers to have because this timeless prayer has been inspired by the Holy Spirit for abounding love. And by abounding, he means overflowing, growing, increasing love with knowledge and discernment. He writes, and it is my prayer that your love may abound or increase more and more with knowledge and all discernment. He's praying for growing love. They have the love of Christ, but he prays for more, for it to grow. Love is a preeminent quality of a believer in Jesus. As the Apostle John writes, anyone who does not love does not know God, for God is love. Jesus said, a new commandment I give you, that you love one another. By this, all men will know you're my disciples if you have love for one another. It's a mark of maturity. It's a mark of a believer. And Paul prays for it to grow, for it to increase. But notice specifically, it's not merely a, a warm feeling he's praying for. He says, I pr- my prayers that your love would abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment. He's praying for love with godly wisdom, love as God loves, love with knowledge, love with right judgment, love with discernment, love that has been shaped by God's wisdom. This may call for discipline at times. Those of you who are parents know this to be true. A wise and lovely parent will discipline a child for his or her good because you love that child. The Bible says God disciplines, he chastens, he disciplines those he love, loves. So God's love includes right judgment, wise judgment. If you really love a friend and you see your friend going in a really wrong direction in life, what do you do? Uh, not up to me to judge. Love will often compel you to lovingly confront your friend the apostle Paul writes to the Galatians, if any one of you is overtaken in a in a fault, you see a friend overtaken in some sin, under stumbling in some sin, going down a wrong path. If any one of you is overtaken in a fault, you who are spiritual, you who are spiritual, restore him gently, considering yourself lest you also be tempted. That's love to be willing to go to a friend going in the wrong direction and gently, lovingly confront. That's abounding that's love with knowledge and discernment. Jesus loved his disciples dearly. He cared for them. He washed their feet. But he also corrected them when they needed correction, didn't he? He corrected their pride, their self-seeking, giving them even fairly firm rebukes at times. We're called to grow in love, but love with knowledge and all discernment. Secondly, Paul prays for the ability to approve things that are excellent. He writes, so that you may approve things that are excellent. This is the ability in a growing Christian to make choices to do things that are best in God's eyes. As we grow in our spiritual maturity and our faith in Jesus, we get a clear understanding of of what is right and what is wrong. (coughs) Excuse me. The book of Hebrews uh, talks about spiritual maturity in chapter five, when it it, it says the mature those mature Christians are those who have their powers of discernment trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil. When you first become a Christian, there are things you may recognize immediately in your life that need to change. But as you grow in your faith over time. You may discover there are more things that God wants to change. Sins of attitudes that you've you've harbored over time that at first you didn't recognize were wrong. But as you grow, you see, yeah, God wants that to change. God wants me to forgive that person. God wants me to set that aside. We grow over time. This ability to approve things that are excellent. But that's not the whole sentence. Paul continues, so that you may approve things that are excellent and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ. Paul's praying, in this maturity, I want you to become pure in your faith. The word has a reference to, to being unmixed, not good mixed with bad, uh, in order to be blameless in preparation for Christ's return. A lot of times in the writings of Paul, we find it in other New Testament writers as well, you'll find a reference to the day of of Christ. Paul had this vision of getting Christians prepared for Jesus' return. He lived in anticipation of Jesus coming back, and he wanted his people to be ready. In fact, the New Testament teaches that living with that anticipation of Jesus' return leads to a more pure life. The Apostle Paul, uh, John, rather, in 1 John chapter 3 wrote that um, when we see him, when he returns, we'll be like him because we'll see him as he is. And John goes on to say, everyone who has this hope in himself purifies himself as he is pure. As we live in anticipation of Jesus' return, of Jesus' coming back, it has a purifying effect upon our lives. And Paul's praying for us to grow in our ability to discern right from wrong. To approve what is excellent. To be pure and blameless. So we'll be ready for that day. The day of Christ. Thirdly, Paul prays for this. For believers to be filled with the fruit of righteousness. He ends the short prayer this way. Filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. Fruit is what results from something that's in one's life, and in this case, that is righteousness that comes through Jesus. It's evidence of a life that's been changed by the righteousness of Jesus. Paul is praying for our lives to show evidence that Jesus has not only forgiven us and entered our lives by the Holy Spirit, but he has made us righteous. Faith shows. In fact, James, in the book of James, would say faith without works is dead. If your faith is genuine, there will be some evidence. And this evidence Paul refers to as the fruit of righteousness. The righteousness of Christ in your life will show with fruit like love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, faith, meekness, self-control, these fruit of the Holy Spirit. Now Paul will go on to stress just uh, two chapters later in Philippians chapter three, that there are two kinds of righteousness to consider and only one that is to be desired. You see in the verse on the screen on the next slide that this first righteousness is our own righteousness that comes by our own efforts to be good enough, to adhere to rules, to adhere to laws, The other type is the righteousness from God that comes only one way, and that's through faith in Jesus. Paul says, my longing is for that day when I'll be found not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law. That is insufficient. That is inadequate. Paul himself would write, none is righteous, no one, no not one, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. But Jesus... Jesus died once for all, the righteous he for the unrighteous us, to bring us to God. God made him to be sent for us who knew no sin that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. The work of Jesus was to give his perfectly righteous life on the cross to pay our sin debt and through our faith in Him, we're credited with His righteousness. This is what Paul calls that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. I have talked to a number of people over the years that have gone to church, some, and expressed belief in God. But when asked why they'd go to heaven, what they would depend on in order to gain entrance to eternal life, they point to themselves and they say, I've been a good person. I've tried to do my best. I'm honest. I believe in God. I'm good to my family. Those are fine things. We should do those things. None of those will save us. As Paul said, by works of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight. If you could get to heaven by doing those things, why would the Son of God, the second person of the Trinity, Jesus Christ, have left heaven and given his life to die upon a cross? Because that was the only way that people who are by nature sinful as we all are could be regenerated, redeemed, made new, made righteous, so that we can actually stand before God clothed in the righteousness of the Son of God, Jesus Christ. That's why we can call God our Father who art in heaven, Abba, Father. Jesus has done that for us. So if you're one who's depending on your own righteousness, please, 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 please lay that aside. You cannot enter eternity based on your own righteousness, but only on the righteousness of Jesus Christ. So let me recap the prayer now. Three points in Paul's prayer. Number one, I'm praying that your love may abound, your love would increase more and more in knowledge and all discernment. Secondly, that you may approve what is excellent so that you can be pure, and blameless for the day of Christ when Jesus comes, that your life will be unmixed with the sin of the world around you. You'll be pure and blameless. And then thirdly, that you will be filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. This is God's will, this is a, a, a map for our spiritual growth it's a vision for what your life and my life can be it's a guide to what we can aspire to in our spiritual growth this year and it's a guide for prayer so two questions by way of personal application as we close today number one do i have scripture shaped goals for my spiritual growth this year one reason i love the month of january is that it seems people are more open to renewed devotion to the Lord and to pursuing spiritual goals for their lives for the year. What what they're going to do this year in terms of seeking God and how to seek him. If you need a picture of what your spiritual life can be, go to Ephesians 1, Ephesians 3, Philippians 1, Colossians 1, 2 Thessalonians 1, and look at the prayers of Paul. They paint a picture for us of what our lives can be and should be. Secondly, how can I use the prayers of Paul to develop my own prayer life? So many people I've heard say, I'm not comfortable praying out loud. I feel self-conscious about what I say when I pray. Paul's prayers will teach you how to pray. They give us a vocabulary for prayer. They show us how to express prayers to God. And don't forget the gratitude. Don't forget the thanksgiving. Let's pray together now. Father, I think of the great apostle Paul who wrote these words, and yet in his humility he would say, we do not know how to pray as we ought. How much more must we say that? And yet he went on to teach us that the Holy Spirit is our helper. So please, Lord, by the Holy Spirit, make us people of prayer. Make us a church with a culture of prayer. Let us see the hallways filled with people clustered and praying together. Thank you for what we already see in our students. Thank you for their example. Continue to work among them to raise the level of prayer. And among the rest of us too, Lord. Father, I pray for any here who's been trusting in his or her own goodness to gain eternal life. Father, please let it become very clear to that one today that Jesus alone is the way and the truth and the life and that no one comes to the Father except through him, Christ alone. Bring that one to the saving knowledge of you today, Lord. Blessed be your name, Lord. We magnify you this day.